Good. Uh, if you would take your Bibles and find your way to Hebrews chapter 11. We are in chapter 11, and we're having a, a great time. We began uh, our study of chapter 11 not too long ago, and we're looking at biblical faith and how it is exp- uh, exemplified, actually, or you could even say personified. Uh, while you're turning, though, let me just say a few words of introduction. There is no question that we live in a godless age, no question at all, and characteristic of that age is surely a narcissistic disposition. Paul told Timothy in a prophetic manner that it was um, what would characterize the last times, this narcissistic disposition. People would be lovers of self. They would be quite hedonistic, actually. And in that passage in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about churchgoers, albeit apostates. Not only does the world go down the tubes as a godless self-centered, narcissistic bunch, but it takes the church along with it, part of it, not all of it, of course, and it's an apostatized form of the church, of course. That means that there are people out there in churches who promote a lifestyle that is self-pleasing. You might not readily recognize this because they're very good at dressing up in biblical terminology uh, that... Um, unbiblical or erroneous kind of teaching and making it sound very spiritual. Just in the same way that our society who turns, for example, and uses the word racist uh, where it doesn't apply in order to shut up others and make them comply because really nobody wants to be called a racist. So counterfeit Christians follow suit and they will promote a self-centered or anthropocentric lifestyle instead of a God-centered or theocentric lifestyle, and they'll make it sound very spiritual. They'll give God credit for their counterfeit theology as well and make you seem unloving if you disagree with them. They will urge you, for example, to do and say things that the Bible clearly doesn't and then make you out to be judgmental or unloving or unspiritual if you don't whether it's the self-esteem garbage that's worked its way into Christianity, convincing people that the church, uh, that people in the church, that they need to be uh, loved by others before they can actually love others, or that they need to forgive themselves, or the social gospel that places emphasis on doing good to society and it promotes a works mentality, right? or a prosperity gospel that promotes health and wealth as signs of God's affirmation of saving faith, or a woke theology that really distorts God's justice with social justice and challenges God's total and full redemption for anyone who confesses Christ with critical race theory that insists on bricking up the dividing wall that Jesus tore down by his one-time substitutionary sacrifice. The 15th century monk and poet John Lydgate is credited with the very famous quote, you know it, you can please some of the people all of the time, you can please all of the people some of the time, but you cannot please all of the people all of the time. Do you remember that one? I think those in power in America right now couldn't care less about who they can please at any time. Their concern is about their own pleasure and are determined to make sure that 
that you please them all the time. We shouldn't be surprised at such a self-centered, narcissistic mentality from people who worship the creation rather than the creator. That's just bound to happen. But it might take us a little off guard, and certainly we're always saddened when this kind of thinking finds its way into the church and is Christianized by counterfeit or severely compromised believers of some reputation. We need to remind ourselves that our goal in life is to please the Lord. And it is a goal that is easily forgotten, I think, by true believers who let their guard down in our present-day America. So here, here's what God says about whom we are to please. I'll begin with Isaiah 46, verse 10, God speaking, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my plan will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God pursues his well-organized plan, the plan that he foreordained in eternity past, according to his good pleasure. In fact, it would seem that all that God does in history for, for himself and for us is according to his good pleasure. That is what pleases him. According to the New Testament epistles, God predestined according to his good pleasure, Ephesians 1, 5. According to his good pleasure, he made known to us the mystery of his will. He caused all the fullness of the deity to dwell in Christ. He was pleased to bruise the Son of God. And he was pleased to receive Christ's sacrifice, was a propitiation. Now, if God's primary goal and reason behind all that he does is his good pleasure, shouldn't that be our goal and reason for living as well? Shouldn't we live for God's pleasure, for his good pleasure? We're not without an answer from Scripture, just so you know. You probably know I was going to tell you, right? Paul tells us in Philippians that God works in us, are you ready, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. That assures us that it's God's will for us to strive to please him in all that we do. There are clear indications of a church that does not that does that and there are clear indications of a church when it doesn't do that. Now the first century Jewish Christians were exhibiting signs of pleasing other people and themselves rather than God. In Hebrews 11, he calls them on it in a very powerful way, and we're going to look at it this morning. We're in Hebrews 11, as I say. We're looking at what biblical faith does in the lives of God's, God's champions, and it will do the same for us, those of us who champion the faith. And we've already examined verse 4, where he speaks of Abel and the principle that biblical faith worships. Biblical faith worships God only. We take on verses 5 and 6 this morning, and this is really the crux of it. Biblical faith pleases. Biblical faith pleases God only, and I'm very eager to get into that with you. The first bit of truth that I want to sort of principalize for you, though, comes not from the verses themselves, but rather from the literary structure of the chapter. And when you study the Bible, when you study any passage, you need to make sure you understand the literary structure of it. Just like we write letters 
what we have to say is important, but the way we say it is also important. It aids in our communication. So I would like to say that the first principle, if you will, that, uh, that comes to us in our study today is this. Worship is the foundation of all spiritual pursuits. Worship is, is, uh, is the foundation of all spiritual pursuits. Now, we made the point from verse 4 last time that biblical faith worships God. I think you remember that. And those who have biblical faith are true worshipers. But it's only now, as we look at the other principles of biblical faith in this chapter, that we see why the writer began with worship, why it heads the list. It's because only a true worshiper is able to carry out the other principles of faith. Worship is a foundational pursuit to all others. If you're a true worshiper of God, here's, here's what's true of you. You put God first. You desire to fellowship with God. You crave intimacy or, or intimate communion with him. You strive to give him praise and glory. You increase the worth of God's reputation in the eyes of others. That's what we do when we praise him. And you will carry out the other principles of faith that we find in the rest of this chapter, like pleasing God, obeying God, living for him, finishing well, being wise in our decisions for him, being courageous and persevering. That's just a little preview of what's to come. The chapter talks about all of these various aspects of biblical faith and our application of them by faith. Now, in one sense, all, all are presented with equal importance, whether we're pleasing God or walking with him or obeying him or living wisely in him and so on. They're all of equal importance. But worship is the one among them that captures most comprehensively who we are, what we do, and why we do what we do. It speaks of a relationship that we have with God that is intimate and personal. True worshipers of God have fixed God in their heart forever as the object of their affections. That's how the Puritans would put it. They will love him first, offer their very lives to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And everything that the New Testament commands us to do in the Christian life flows out of that worshipful disposition. You have to be a true worshiper of God before you can execute any of the other aspects of the Christian life. To say it more simply, you must be born again. Now this first principle comes not so much, as I say, from the verse, or from verse 4, or any of the verses of chapter 11, but really from the literary structure of the chapter. <clears throat> that is to say that the writer puts worship at the very beginning of a long list of spiritual pursuits that faith, must, that, that faith makes possible. And in, and in so doing, he tells us that one must be a true worshiper of God before he or she hopes to ever please God or walk with him or commune with him in prayer and so on. So let me say it again. Worship is the foundation of all spiritual pursuits. And this comes from the ordering of the chapter. For those of us who have biblical faith and we have the Lord as the object of our affections, then the next order of business is to offer ourselves up for God's pleasure. Biblical faith 
is not a faith that only worships God, it is a faith that also pleases him. And that's the next principle. And that's the crux of verses 5 and 6. So I put it this way. This is, you could say, the second principle today. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. Biblical, biblical faith worships God, and it also pleases God. Um, we look at verses 5 and 6 now. Let's see this principle, at least stated by the text. Here's what it says. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was attested to have been pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Okay, the writer gives this brief exposition, really, of an Old Testament passage. And it's Genesis chapter 5 verses 24 and 25. You might hold your place here in Hebrews and find your way over to Genesis 5 if you'd like. I want to say a few words about that. The writer points us to this man Enoch as a perfect model of a life that pleases God. Now, if we hope to understand this passage, then we need to examine Genesis 5 just a little bit. So if you find your way there, here's what verses 20. Uh, 21 to 24 actually say. This is Genesis 5, 21 to 24. Now Enoch lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he fathered Methuselah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. Very interesting passage. This is the first time that we come across this individual, Enoch. Genesis 5 lists a genealogy of Seth. He is the son born to Adam and Eve, as you remember. Now, in verse 19, Moses tells us that Enoch was born into this godly line through Jared. That was his father. Much later, Luke will present this genealogy in its fullest form in chapter 3 of his gospel to show us that Enoch is actually in the line of Messiah. But who was Enoch exactly, and, and what did he do? Well, we don't know exactly, but we can make some safe general conclusions from what we read uh, from the Bible, what the Bible does actually say about him. For example, Jude. Jude gives us at least some indication that Enoch championed God's righteousness at a time when his own countrymen were apostatizing. Jude says specifically that Enoch preached to his generation of the coming judgment of God. Here's, here's part of, of Enoch's message. It's listed in Jude, verses 14 and 15. I'll read it for you. Behold, this is Enoch speaking. The Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now apparently Enoch prophesied against unrighteous Israel, called out their disobedience and, and disregard for Yahweh and then warned them that the consequences of their evil actions would incur divine judgment from God at the very end of time. 
Enoch championed God's righteousness and at a time when that was not popular. Now, there's something else that we learn about this man that's just as amazing, if not more. And it's here in Genesis 5. It's brief, and you may have missed it as, I've, as I was reading it in Genesis 5. No, says one of the astute observers. I, I didn't miss it at all. He's the father of, of the biblical character Methuselah, right? Yes, but that's not the most significant part. Well, is it the fact that he lived 365 years? Well, that's quite an accomplishment. No, that's not the significant part either. It's in verse 24 of Genesis 5. Moses tells us that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So what's this all about? What does Moses mean by this statement, especially the part about he was not, for God took him? Well, believe it or not, some think that Moses, this is Moses' way of saying that Enoch died. The phrase is figurative for death, they say, in much the same way that it is for us today. God took my husband. God took my wife. Well, it's a good guess, but it's incorrect. First of all, what would be significant about Enoch's dying? Well, nothing. Doesn't everyone die? Yes. Second of all, the context of Genesis 5 actually suggests that Enoch didn't die at all, but was miraculously transferred from this life right to heaven. How does it suggest this? Remember, this Old Testament passage is a genealogy. It's a record of Seth's descendants and how they are related, when they live, when they die. You'll notice then that in every instance where a descendant is mentioned, including Seth himself, Moses says that each man died. It's exactly what it says. The, little, the small little refrain, and he died, at the end of each man's entry is a dead giveaway. No pun intended. It's said of all of them. And we would expect that because after all, this is a genealogy. But Moses doesn't say that about Enoch. He doesn't say Enoch died. And if Moses wanted us to understand that Enoch died, he simply would have kept the pattern and said, "As uh, and he died. Instead, Moses breaks with the pattern with Enoch, and he says, he was not, for God took him. We all, we're left, I think, to believe that Enoch did, in fact, never die, but God took him from earth right to heaven. Do you see, then, why we should be careful not to read our own figures of speech or modern meanings of words into the text. We need to let the text define the words themselves. Now, this revelation about Enoch is astounding. And I think some who are still skeptical might say, well, isn't it true that, that, that in order for Enoch to be transferred to heaven, he would have had to have had his body changed? Isn't it true that your body needs to be changed before you can enter heaven? Oh. And it's because the text isn't, it's because the text really isn't interested in answering this question that we have nothing from Moses regarding the changing of his body. Enoch's body was, was no doubt changed. It had to have been, as we know Jesus even said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But Moses is simply interested in letting us know that God took this man from his earthly existence right to heaven 
without him ever experiencing death as the others did. That's all. And that's part of what is most significant about this man from this brief text. Part. You mean there's more? What else could there possibly be that is as significant as escaping death? Well, the reason it happened, that's why. Please notice something else here as we compare what Moses said about every person in this list before and after Enoch that he doesn't say about Enoch. They not only died, but they lived. Adam lived, Seth lived, Enosh lived, Kenan lived, etc. That's what it says. That might sound obvious to you. Of course they lived. They had to have existed before they could die. But this is not said of Enoch, even though he too was alive. It says, rather, he walked with God. Do you see that? Moses breaks with the pattern again with Enoch by telling us that he walked with God where the others simply lived. He compares the group who lived with the man who walked with God in order to show them that Enoch's life was exemplary. Though these guys all belong to a godly line of Seth, only Enoch is held up as a model for all of God's people to follow because he walked with God. Can you see that? The expression, he walked with God, actually became a common Hebrew expression for a life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord. It says, in essence, that walking with God for over 300 years and maintaining that consistent walk of faith over his entire life is what is why Moses hails him as a model of faith. It says really that walking with God was a step above mere living. Now, I want to pause here in our exposition of Genesis 5 to say that walking with God, which characterized Enoch's life and what Moses emphasizes, is one of those terms that is often used in Scripture also to characterize the entire life of a true worshiper. It's not as all-encompassing as the term worship, but it is an important biblical concept. Here's what we know about walking with God. Walking surely refers to our life, how we live. We talk today about all walks of life, right? We, we mean by that many different lifestyles of people. Well, in the Bible, to walk with God means to have an intimate relationship with him. In fact, more than a few times, the Old Testament mentions that God walks with his people. Before the fall of man, God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. And walking means that God had an intimate relationship with Adam. It's noteworthy that when Adam fell, listen to this very carefully, when Adam fell, he ran and hid at the sound of God walking in the garden. You remember? In other words, Adam could not walk with God in that moment. He would not be talking with God as they went along, as they used to go along in the midst of the garden, enjoying each other's fellowship, because sin interrupted the walk, the talk, the interacting, everything. Sin severed that relationship immediately. Later, God said to Israel, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. We're not surprised that God would later command Israel to walk in him. 
Leviticus 26.3, walk in my statutes. That means keep my commandments so as to carry them out. And not only that, but in verse 13, God uses the phrase walking upright in Leviticus as a figure for the redeemed life. Listen, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I broke your yoke and made you walk upright. You might expect this idea of walking then with God to be the standard for the believer's life in the New Testament as well. And if you did, you're right. Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Revelation 3.4, Jesus says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In Amos 3, a context of judgment, God pronounces judgment for Israel because they were no longer intimate with him. And God spells out the reason in verse 3, Amos 3.3. 3. How can two people walk together unless they are agreed? Israel hadn't seen eye to eye with the Lord at this time, which brought God's swift judgment upon him. So we're back to Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Enoch was a friend of God's. He enjoyed God's company. He saw eye to eye with God, agreed with his special revelation, the Torah, and was going in the same direction as God. He had no desire for anything other than what God laid before him in the way. To walk with God means for us, as it did for Enoch, that God is in all our thoughts. And I don't mean to suggest that we're consciously thinking of God all the time, every minute, but rather that all that we think about in life that comes our way calls to mind our relationship with God. That, that's to say everything in our lives has a connection with God and the person who walks with God not only senses that connection, but he's ruled by it. When he encounters challenges or changes in his circumstances, he asks himself in what way uh, this change might affect his connection with God. Can he maintain a clear conscience and a closeness to his Lord? When he sins and he offers his, and he, and he offends his God, he cannot rest until he has sought God's face in repentance and resumed his place walking beside the Lord. An old commentator, Marcus Dodds, explains walking this way, and I rather like it. Quote, this is the nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. A readiness to give up what we find does not cause any misunderstanding between us and God. A feeling of, of loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God. A cold and desolate feeling when we are conscious of doing something that displeases him. This walking with God necessarily tells on the whole life and character, end quote. If you walk with God, you are on thoroughly friendly terms with the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. You bear all your purpose 
and hopes before him. You temper your scheme of life and ideas of happiness by divine wisdom, by the Bible. Life was not easy for Enoch, just from the little that we know from Scripture. Jude's quotation no doubt confirms this as any of God's champions who stand for God against a wicked and perverse generation know. Like Enoch, any one of us who champions the faith and walks with God, we need to endure the wickedness of our own generation. And sadly, even among the ranks of God's people at times, as we're clearly seeing today, there will be much to tempt us, much to mislead us. Yet with everything to oppose us, we need by faith and diligent seeking to wade through it all and remain on the path that God has ordained for us. And even though that path might lead us through persecutions, waylay us in darkness for a time, maybe periods where God is silent and seemingly slow to answer our petitions, we still diligently seek the way of God that we know will lead us only to good and eventually to glory. That, I believe, is a little something of what it means to walk with God. Now, we return to Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6, and we see that the writer takes what Moses teaches ancient Israel from Genesis 5, and he applies that same teaching to his own generation. He calls upon his first century Jewish Christian congregation to imitate the faith of Enoch. But I want you to see that as he does this, he puts Moses' teaching about what it means to walk with God in slightly different words. And I wonder if you've picked up on this. Words that are, of course, helpful to our understanding of this blessed concept of walking with God. You need to know right off the bat. Now, I, I have to get a little technical with you. So you need to hang in there with me on this one. Um, you need to know right off the bat that the writer of Hebrews quotes from the LXX. You know, the LXX is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? He is not quoting from the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Bible, which we just read from. We read from the, the English translation of the Hebrew Bible. Everybody with me so far? Now, we're not surprised at this because all the quotations that the writer uses in this letter come from the LXX. Remember, his church audience was comprised mostly of Hellenistic Jews who, who would have been familiar or more familiar with the LXX. So the writer doesn't quote the entire Old Testament passage, only the last part of Genesis 5.24 in the Greek translation. Here's how the two versions compare. The Hebrew Bible says, and he was not, for God took him. The LXX reads, and he was not found because God took him up. No significant difference there. And the writer adds his own explanation, and we would be right in saying his own commentary on this verse in the rest of what he says in verse 5. What he adds, of course, is what the Holy Spirit led him to say, and it actually confirms our interpretation of that passage. The writer explains that by faith, Enoch was taken up so he would not see death. The Hebrew, the Hebrew text is not that specific, but that's what it means, and that's how we understood it. So our understanding of the Hebrew Bible is right after all. 
Enoch never saw death. God took him up to heaven. So far, so good. I want to show you that the writer gives us more commentary in the rest of the verse. And his commentary is very close to the LXX version of Genesis 5, even though the writer does not quote any more from it. So here is how Genesis 5, 22 to 24 reads in the Greek version. You ready? And Enoch was well-pleasing to God after his begetting Methuselah. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch was well-pleasing to God and was not found because God translated him. Did you hear the difference? Genesis 5.24 that we read before in the Hebrew Bible tells us that God took Enoch up because Enoch walked with God. But the LXX says that Enoch was well-pleasing to God. The writer to the Hebrews uses the language of the LXX, and he says, in verse 6, Enoch was attested to have been pleasing to God. He says nothing about walking with God. Nothing at all. Now, our text in Hebrews 11, 5 to 6, is what is our focus this morning, not Genesis 5. Obviously, the Genesis passage is key, but the writer uses it as his central text to instruct us. He uses the Old Testament Greek translation of the Hebrew text and not the original text directly. The technical part's almost over, I assure you. The Hebrew of Genesis 5 says Enoch walked with God, but the LXX translation says that Enoch was well-pleasing to God. We already know why the writer uses the LXX, but does he lose anything in translation when he does? It's a good question especially today when there's so many translations and people quibble, quibble sometimes over which is the right one, which is kind of a silly uh, you know, discussion. Before I answer that question, I need to, I need to, to help your understanding of, of the benefit of the Greek translation as a whole. What many people don't realize about the LXX is that it, it is really one of the earliest interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. In all... In that all translations, of course, of the, uh, are of the original biblical languages. They are all, to some degree, interpretations. And the LXX is a reliable translation of the original Hebrew. Jesus thought so because he quotes from it in the Gospels. So when the translators of the LXX read from the Hebrew Bible, the very same one that we have today, that Enoch walked with God, they interpreted walk to mean a life that was well-pleasing. And with all that we've said about the meaning of walking with God, we can see that their translation is a good one. And what confirms their interpretation here is an acceptable one is the fact that the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, saw fit to quote it at this point in Hebrews 11. We can be sure, then, that this ancient translation gives us a good interpretation of the Hebrew verse and even a greater insight into what it means to walk with God. So I might recast our discussion on what it means to walk with God as a life that is devoted to pleasing Him. Please, please is a more uh, 
all-encompassing concept that captures better what walk in Genesis 5 is really meant to convey. While both walk and plea, walk and please are in this context referring to the same kind of relationship with God, walk has to do more with a lifestyle. But please has to do more with both the goal of the Christian lifestyle and the motive behind that lifestyle. That is, my goal is to please God and what motivates me to obey the Lord is that goal. And pleasing Christ is the same thing really as pursuing the kingdom where Christ is seated. It's the same thing as glorifying or making Christ significant in the eyes of others by how we live for him. Let me say also that pleasing God speaks to the means of, of our own personal contentment, whereas walk doesn't really. You see, it connects God's pleasure with ours in that his pleasure makes our pleasure. We argued in the recent, in recent past that true contentment comes simply in knowing that we have Christ's approval and pleasure, right? When you know that you have God's pleasure and approval, you're at that very moment the most content that you can be this side of heaven. And it doesn't matter if the whole entire world is against you. God is for you. And that's all that matters. Verse 5 tells us in no uncertain terms that Enoch's, Enoch rather, was attested by God or proved by God to have been pleasing to him. In other words, God let Enoch know throughout his 365-year uh, lifespan that Enoch was pleasing to him, that Enoch had God's approval in all that he did. So in order to please God, you have to walk with him in this obedient, intimate manner that we described. And that becomes the means of our personal contentment. What the world finds contentment in is circumstance, and that's always changing. What the Christian finds contentment in is his relationship with Christ, which never changes. And if you are pleasing your first love, you will be content no matter what's taking place around you. Finally, I would say that the idea of pleasing rounds off the writer's argument in verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please the Lord. That's what he says. Without faith, it's impossible to please him for the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Since the writer has just used Enoch as our model, we can be content that Enoch assured himself that a great reward in God was waiting for him. And he lived in light of it. So sterling was his life of anticipating God's reward that God took him. Well, the principle of pleasing God, then, is absolute, beloved. It's absolute. That is, it's, not, it's a non-negotiable for those who belong to Christ. The word impossible in verse 6, I think, makes that very clear. There is absolutely no way that anyone could ever please the Lord outside of biblical faith. No way at all. And that statement is, is an indictment on so much of American Christianity. I'll elaborate on that just a bit. Biblical faith, biblical faith takes God's scripture to be 100% true and reliable, sufficient. The very words of God are applicable for all ages, never needing updating, never needing editing. The scripture is complete, and the last word from the mouth of God to us on, 
on the issue of spirituality and morality. It is, as Peter has told us, everything we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of the Son. It is our final authority in all matters, final. Our very own 1689 Baptist Confession that we recited this morning, it goes on to testify to this. It says, quote, all these are given by the inspiration of God to be the standard of faith and life. He's talking about the words of Scripture. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith and life is either explicitly stated or by, ne by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures, end quote. So as true worshipers of God who have biblical faith, we listen to our Lord. We listen to him. We follow his instruction for how to live our lives that he has given us in the book in a way that fairly and accurately represents him and is sure to please him. I know the difficulty often comes when the Word of God instructs us to go in directions that we think are sure to make matters worse for us. But here is where biblical faith trusts that the Lord knows better. He, as the good sovereign who determined the end from the beginning, has ordered our lives to the minutest detail. We believe that part of his plan for us certainly involves persecution, difficult times, but the eyes of faith see these instances as simply part of the ingredients of God's glorious plan for us, a plan that dead ends in glory and uses them as platforms to please Christ. Jeremiah knew this, Isaiah knew this, and all those others in the list of Hebrews 11 knew this. But American Christianity does not believe this because it doesn't see with the eyes of biblical faith. As a result... It has become rather adept at refashioning Christianity to fit its own agenda while giving God the credit for it. Now, how deceptive is that? If you claim to have faith in Christ, saving biblical faith, then you will devote your life to pleasing the Master. Just as you go out of your way to please others in your life. Once again, Marcus Dodd's clarifies this he says quote as you instinctively avoid subjects which you know will jar upon the feelings of your friend as you naturally endeavor to suit yourself to your company so when the consciousness of God's presence begins to have some weight with you you're found instinctively endeavoring to please him repressing the thoughts you know he disapproves of and endeavoring to educate such dispositions as reflect his own nature, end quote. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. We heard it read in our scripture reading for this morning. Paul obviously knew what it meant to live a life that pleases Christ, and he wrote about it as our main ambition in life. Listen to verse 9. We make it our ambition to please Christ. Is that your ambition? Is that your goal? If it's not yours, you need to make it yours today. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness.